Today's podcast is brought to you by Elation Professional. Elation has really upped its game with its artiste series of theatrical grade LED moving heads, which are being used in venues like the Met Opera in New York and the Royal Opera House in London. Filling out the top of the award-winning artiste series is the Mondrian, a 51,000-lumen LED profile FX luminaire named after the famed Dutch painter. The Mondrian uses the same technology as the artiste Monet and artiste Rembrandt, including Elation's seven-flag Spectra Color color mixing system and endless and continuous rotational framing system. The Mondrian is loaded with features for a true all-in-one workhorse, perfect for any application requiring powerful beams, stunning air effects, and superior color. And unlike many of its competitors, the Artiste Mondrian is in stock. Check out the complete Artiste line at elationlighting.com. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Geezers of Gear, this time episode number 167. They're flying by here. So um, <clears throat> last week we had Sooner, and uh, I don't know about you, but I like Sooner a whole lot. I think she's a very talented designer. She's uh, a great person, a lot of fun to, to chit-chat with. So that was a fun episode. It's doing really, really well. Lots of people downloading it. And uh, so I appreciate all of you. I appreciate people listening. I appreciate that you give a damn. And uh, I certainly appreciate people like Sooner continuing to come on. Uh, and she's somewhere between goddess of gear and geezet of gear. Geezeret, geezet, geezet of gear. So um, we do appreciate Sooner. And uh, thanks a whole bunch for doing that. And of course, I would be remiss if I didn't mention our sponsors. We appreciate our sponsors very much. Today's sponsor, Relation. Uh, we're very grateful to have sponsors. Again, it's nice that people care. And so thank you to Elation and your Artiste series of moving lights today. And uh, I look forward to actually seeing the folks from Elation and all of uh, our suppliers and friends and etc. in the industry next week in Las Vegas at Infocom. I will be there uh, for a couple of days. If you're listening to this and you're going to be in Vegas for Infocom, hit me up. Let's get together. Let's have a coffee, beer, orange juice, whatever it is you fancy at this point of your life. And uh, but I'd love to see people like to say hi to people, uh, reconnect, etc. And of course, I will be stopping in Vegas en route on my way to my house up in Canada. I'm going to actually spend the entire summer up there or as much of it as I possibly can. And it looks like I'm copying Michael Meacham, but I'm not. He actually copied me because I used to go to Canada all the time before he ever found this beautiful place up there. So, um, Michael, I am not copying you. I'm just letting you know and making sure that uh, we're all clear on that one. So, speaking of Canada, uh, this week's guest is a fellow Canuck 
who most of you will know, Huntley Christie. And I've been trying to get Huntley on here for a couple of years now, a few years probably. And uh, of course, Huntley started Christie Lights back in the mid 80s, following a uh, brief and about as successful career as a working musician as I had, uh, him being a drummer. And of course, back in those days, when you were a drummer or a bass player singer, as I was, you were uh, responsible for loading trucks and unloading trucks and setting up gear. And I was always the lucky guy who got to connect the power to the house uh, 220 volt power system or whatever, 208 volt or whatever it was. But it was always, hey, Marcel, you do it. And you'd yell back to the bartender, did you shut off the, you know, the 208 volt on the stage? Yep, yep, it's off. And of course, when you go to plug wires into it, it's not off. So I was always that guy. And um, I now uh, resent that. You know, I don't like that. It was very nasty that people made me do that, especially knowing that I have no idea what I'm doing. I still can't, uh, you know, put one of those little three prong end things on a, on a power cord. Cause I just don't know which one Brown goes to and green goes to, and I get lost. That's just who I am. So, um, yeah. So Huntley was a musician. He was a drummer back in the early eighties. And then, I think 1985 or so, he started Christie, uh, and he did find success. Uh, unlike his drumming career, he found big success in lighting. He built the largest and most successful stage lighting company in just over a decade, and eventually he moved his family to Orlando uh, and um, continued his success into the United States, where he built the first U.S.-based location in Orlando, and then he expanded throughout Canada and the U.S. and now Europe as well. Uh, so he's killing it. And he's got a lot of great stories. Huntley has a lot of really interesting business techniques and things that he does differently than other people. And I always enjoy talking with him. And I'm going to enjoy this as well. So please welcome Huntley Christie. Huntley. Marcel. How are you, my friend? Good. It's great. Uh, great to be chatting finally. I've been trying to get you to do this since I think even before COVID, before yeah, the maybe. rotten Rona. <laughs> yeah, it, I I just got off the phone with a friend of mine who's a uh, promoter, uh, California slash Florida promoter named Larry Richter. I don't know if you know him, but um, mm -hmm. really good dude. And he he actually just got it this weekend for the first time ever. He. He had to do, I think he did a like Snoop Dogg show or something and uh, came back with COVID. So he's not feeling too good. And it's the first time, like, I mean, way out of fashion, you know, we've all had it and he's like right. new to it. Yeah, so. This guy's out of, he's out of step. Yeah. Of step. I, what the hell? I mean, it's, that's so like 2021, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, exactly. what are you doing? You got to get monkeypox now. Go to like these, <laughs> the weird orgies and stuff, and get monkeypox. That's right. That's the that's the next uh, that's the next great thing we got to look forward. Well, and to God for knows sure. it'll hit the lighting business, you know, because we do go <laughs> go to some weird parties, you know. So, so yeah. Well, I'm well, I'm definitely glad you're you're doing this. So, are you at home in in Orlando now? Or yeah, 
I'm, I'm here in Orlando. Thanks for the invitation. It, it's uh, it, it's great. I'm I've been traveling a lot recently, but uh, yeah. it's nice to get a bit of uh, downtime at the at the house. Well, yeah, and I want to talk to you about some of that traveling because you're going to some interesting places where you now have business. So uh, we'll get into that. Um, sure. So you know, as I like to do, I like to go back to the you know days gone by, the way way early machine. You know the 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 80s and stuff. And you, like many of us, myself included, um, started as a musician. And uh, tell me about that. You were a, I think you were a drummer, right? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, a lot of guys, even especially in the lighting side of things, have drumming in their background. And and that's uh, that was the introduction that I got to the industry. Love playing the drums, worked really hard at it, but, uh, it just, it, it wasn't working out, wasn't paying the bills, uh, had a fun run for a few years at it. And, and during that time, it was a great introduction to production. I, I think, uh, having to deal with audio and, and, and lighting and, and managing gigs, it, it, was, yeah. a, it was a good, yeah, great window into it. And when it came time to reconsider options, uh, by that point, I was really familiar with with both audio and lighting, and uh, lighting was a was the pick, I yeah. think, because you know there's there's a, a a wonderful sort of mix in the lighting world between engineering and artistry. Yeah, and I don't, I don't want to give the sound guys any hard time about this, but the 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 uh, the lighting side has a little more sort of insanity and chaos to it in terms of uh, rig rig setups and different kinds and engineering and so forth. But it still requires a lot of discipline. Although I don't understand audio at all anymore, like with all this Dante and like there's no outboard racks anymore. It's all these right. plugins and stuff. And I just like, I could not, I couldn't mix a one piece band anymore. You know? and, <laughs> and not that I was ever a sound guy, but I could walk up to, you know, a 24 channel sound craft board and figure out how to make a sound a band sound half decent you know right not anymore well, i wouldn't I think, even know how to turn it on yeah yeah and I, that's a great point i i think that audio has a greater proportion of engineering skill yeah whether it's how to tune a room or what have you and lighting lighting's got a lot of engineering in the way of packaging and you know electricity and so forth but there's this this crazy off the wall uh there, there's no wrong way to set up a cool looking rig in an arena, but there's certainly a wrong way to put, you know, line arrays in. in well, yeah. Audio has become off. very mathematical now, you know, it, it's, it's yeah. like all equations and stuff, you know, exactly. you, you walk around a room and suddenly some computer figures out exactly where to put speaker boxes and how many of them and all of that stuff. It's all very, I don't know. It's very different from, from yeah. when, when we were kids, when you just put like this huge stack of speakers at one end and made kids bleed less and less as they got further <laughs> back from those speakers. Right. So, yeah. uh, yeah, exactly. But you said something interesting. You said a lot of us started as drummers and I, you know, I've known a lot of musicians who made their way into either lighting or audio, of course. And it was usually, down to uh economics you know like for me myself yeah, my, my my bar tab 
you know, I was earning 200 a week playing on the road in a band in Alberta and British Columbia, but my bar tab was 250. So, you know, it just, <laughs> the math didn't work out so good for me, but, That's great. but why drummers? I mean, is that, is it a you rhythmic know, I, thing I, that goes with the you know, lighting I, or? It's a great question. And I, I, and I love that question because I've tried to answer it for, for many years. We have a lot of drummers at Christie lights and I, you know, my theory, and it's just a theory, is that drummers are the practical element in the band. Right. And I think you're going to find more drummers were in charge of the practical side of production. I mean, you can you really count on a lead singer to make sure that the rig is set up on time in some little bar. Well, I hate to say it, but I was going to say the same thing about drummers. <laughs> you know, I've known some pretty unreliable, not so smart drummers in my life. You know, they were usually well, the dumb know, ones. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm with you on the not so smart part, but I, I, I think a drummer is way more reliable than a lead singer. It's okay, my experience. Okay. But I, yeah. I, I, that's like wrong. saying Domino's makes better pizza than Little Caesars. You know, they're both <laughs> shit, but, you know, one's less shitty than the other one, right? True so, enough. So you're saying drummers and singers, one's less dumb than the other one? Well, you know, point, when, right? when you when you think of drummers being the, the basic rhythm section of the band, mm. uh, and when it comes to production, loading trucks, getting things organized, I know a lot of drummers that played a role in the band organizationally. Hmm. Um, and I know a lot of bands that were put together by drummers too. So totally true, actually, I, I played for a few bands where the drummer was either owned the PA system or was the leader of the band, the manager of the band, whatever. Um, yeah. so that's true. I always just thought it was because they had all this extra time on their hands because they didn't have to learn an instrument. Right. <laughs> so. Oh my God, that one hurts. That, I mean, that one really hurt. I failed as a drummer, but now to realize I couldn't, I wasn't even playing an instrument. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's, oh, there's yeah, musicians right. and drummers, right? Yeah. There's sure. each band has musicians and drummers. That's true. Uh, yeah. Oh my God. So somehow that became this, you know, crazy desire to start a lighting company. How'd that happen? Yeah, I, I think, you know, the great thing about our industry is that the misfits, the people that want to run off to the circus, guys like me that couldn't complete college, we, all of us types had an opportunity in our industry. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the great thing about the production industry, certainly in the in the 80s and, of course, in the 70s, is that there were very few barriers to entry. No one was asking about college degrees. No one was was even doing interviews. So, you know, for for the the individuals that were a little different, this was a great industry to uh, jump into. So I think it was a natural segue from drumming because I wasn't going to get a, a a more traditional job, and it was exciting. I mean, I still love being part of the music scene. And this was the closest I could get to yeah, it without yeah, playing an instrument. Yeah. yeah. So, but you, you never thought to go work for a company. You just said, I'm going to go start my own company. You know, I, thanks for that question. Cause it reminds me <laughs> that, that, you know, I did, I worked, I worked for uh, two companies really, really enjoyed it. I think, um, uh, at the time Canada was completely, 
populated with full service businesses. Right. So sound right. and lighting and a bit of staging and so forth. Um, and I was really keen on the lighting side. I'd looked to the U.S. and seen a lot of very specialized lighting companies that I thought were really exciting. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think that coupled with a little bit of my stubborn nature and and at that point uh, uh, a a mindset where I really didn't want to be following someone else's orders maybe, a little bit of (laughs) So that, that kind of drove that independent thinking that, that had me want to start my own thing. I completely and, get it. I completely yeah. get it. I, I went the long route to making my way back around to realizing I had to do things for myself. You know, I, I tried to do, I tried to be an entrepreneur inside other people's companies for many years. Uh-huh. And it, it's hard to do because you know you're right. And you want to pursue, pursue your idea. But at the end of the day, if they say no, they say no, it's their company. Yeah. They're, they're writing the checks, they're spending the money, but I know this idea is going to work. And fortunately I worked for some people who believed in me enough to let me act like an owner, I guess, inside their company nice. and, and let me spend their money and hoped that it was going the right direction, which, you know, fortunately knock on my wooden head, it, it typically did go pretty well. But so isn't it just that you had all this Christie Bakery money that you had to go out and spend and, and you said, I'm going to go start a lighting company. This is yeah. the rumor I've always heard is that you yes. just got this fortune dumped in your lap from, uh, you know, for those who are listening who don't know, while well, you tell the story, I mean, there's a famous yeah, name in that, Canada. That, that's a, a great uh, little segue into my family history. My great, great grandfather in the 1850s caught a, a a boat over to Canada from Scotland. Mm-hmm. And uh, he started a bakery that did very well in Canada. Um, he ended up selling it to Nabisco. And uh, it's a great sort of rags to riches to rags story. And, and uh, <laughs> Wait, are you like, saying he like spent it all again? Yeah. Well, yeah. I like to say that, that his descendants, my grandfather spent 90% of the money for the inheritance on women uh-oh. Horses, booze, and gambling, and the last ten percent he wasted. <laughs> That's good. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> so, I that uh, I didn't actually uh, enjoy or or have the benefit of uh, family money, and, and quite honestly, it was uh, one of the things that really helped. Uh, when I started in the eighties, interest rates were north of 10%. My first loan was, was at 13%. And, Damn. and yeah. Was that and a family I, you know, loan or was, was that a bank loan? Well, you know what? I'm embarrassed to say it was actually my mother who loaned me 25 grand. And, and the embarrassing part was she was still charging me the 13% interest. Good so. for her. Good for her. Yeah. That's awesome. But yeah. I think, I, I think that those realities help uh, help us develop the right tool set yeah. to continue to grow. And, and, and um, I suspect if I'd been handed a pile of cash, I wouldn't have known how to use it or I would have, uh, it may not have uh, had me learn the, 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 
the real trade of, of business and finance. Which well, and the other thing is if, if she would have loaned you the money either without an interest rate or with a really, you know, falsely low interest rate, you might right. have thought money's always going to be cheap so I can borrow it whenever I need to and as much of it as yeah. I need to. And, you know, it, it's not expensive to pay back. And, you know, so I think the fact that it, it was, it hurt you know, yes. is probably a yeah. good thing. That's, that's it. Exactly. I've always, you know, I think in our industry, which is so capital intensive, mm-hmm. I, I've, you know, loans and debt are sort of like cocaine. Yeah. It's a very addictive, problematic, uh, uh, situation to get yourself into where you're, where you're just, uh, overly leveraged. Yeah. Um, but it's easy to do, uh, in certain environments and, uh, that early, that early stage where money was hard to come by was, was a, it was a good teacher. Yeah. Very good. Teacher. Yeah. yeah. I want to talk to you about that a little bit later. Cause I want to get into, you know, I have some views and opinions on debt coming out of this COVID thing. Right. And, uh, I think it's going to be very impactful and I think we're going to see more and more challenges because of it. Um, so I want to talk with you about that once we get through this. So, you know, bottom line is all the stuff we've heard is bullshit about the fact that you were basically propped up by this uber successful great grandfather who gave you tens of millions of dollars to found Christie. You founded it on a $25,000 interest loan, uh, from your mother. Wow. Yes. Yeah, correct. I mean, my, my grandfather's business, uh, ended in the, the twenties when he, when it was sold to Nabisco. And then quite frankly, the, the family fortune, so to speak, was all lost in the depression. So, wow. uh, yeah, but it was a great lesson in, in, in how, uh, how things can change for all of us at any time. Yeah. And you know, Huntley, some would say whatever lights you bought with that 25 grand, you're probably still renting them out now. (laughs) <laughs> well, that's my, that's my Scottish ancestry at work. For right, sure. right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's definitely been some of that and I want to get into some of that too. So, um, you, uh, and then did you have any bumps along the way or did Christy just start here and go up there, you know, on a straight line? Oh, no, yeah. We, you know, lots of problems. My, my first year revenue was $30,000. Yeah. Uh, so it was a very slow start. Um, I, I think like most of us who found our way in this industry, there was a, a, a lot of trial and error and, and learning through experience. So, you know, plenty of failure, plenty of, of uh, mistakes, but mistakes that were proportional to the business in a way that we, we could still survive. Right. So, yeah. right. Was there any added pressure with your family name being attached to it? No, I, you know, I think I picked the name Christy out of a lack of originality and personal insecurity. Yeah. So, you know, uh, but there was certainly, no, I don't feel there was. If, uh, if people could spell or say my last name, I probably would have done the same. But, <laughs> you know, I have to spell it a thousand times just when I go to the bank or something. So I didn't think right. that was a good direction for me to go. So, but you might have made a good choice. It seems to have worked. Seems to have worked out okay. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I know, like, I think one of the earliest times I really got to talk with you um, at length was in your Orlando shop. And you walked through and you told me some of the sort of Huntley-isms. 
And, you know, the fact was at that point, and I don't know if you still do it today, but at that point, you really had this cookie cutter sort of footprint for the shops and for the shelving, the racking, and for the cases that went into the racking. It was almost like pre-Amazon type of stuff like amazon.com I've you know I know they have they have box sizes and stuff has to like I know I get a shipment from Amazon and the box is like 12 inches by 12 inches and there's a tiny little like you know uh SD card inside a memory card or something you know and you're like what the hell but it fits their system right right and and you had a similar model yes I, I think when we when I started Christie Lights I was painfully aware that from an innovation standpoint, we were not participants in the, the higher level technology, moving lights, fixtures, consoles, what have you. Um, But there was opportunity for us to innovate in the operational sphere. So we, we focused uh, our innovation in that area. And And I wouldn't say it was huge innovation. It was simply looking for efficiencies to run shops and and in running more than one shop becomes very challenging at times because of uh, gear movements and staffing and what have you. And it, it, it really just fell to the simplicity of getting the job done that if we had things the same, it, it, it made it far easier to get stuff done. Um, I, 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 I would also say that even things like, Warehouse rents, rent costs uh, drove us uh, to be more space efficient, um, being located in cities like Toronto and Vancouver, which were our first two locations. We became very adept at maximizing square footage. So we, we would use height to great advantage and, and also uh, storage systems and, and what have you. Yeah, no, I, I thought it was brilliant. And, and, you know, I got to sort of see behind the scenes as PRG was being put together and they didn't have those philosophies. And that was some of the biggest challenges they had was that, you right. know, they were, they were mixing and matching lights, sound equipment, whatever around the country, initially mostly lighting. And, um, you know, they were, the infrastructure was all different down to cabling cases. Everything was all different and it was just causing havoc. And I remember standing with, you know, I was working for high end systems at the time. And I remember standing with an LD at a particular show. It might've been in Orlando actually. And there were like 200 studio colors on this show and it was a television shoot. And there were like probably 15 different color temperatures on these 200 studio colors that came in all different color and all different size cases and stuff, right? Which already pissed him off and different cabling and different whatever. And, but then when he put them up and realized they, so he demanded um, all new lamps for these fixtures and that became like a a big deal, you know, a couple hundred lights and and he wanted all new lamps because they look terrible on camera. So you know, things like that um, are definitely minimized when you start to standardize your systems and, and you know, that yeah. back office sort of infrastructure operation stuff. Well, I, you know, a, a real shout out to both Claire Brothers, who I guess it's Claire Global now, but, but Claire really were the first people I knew that 
blended the, the idea of a piece of production equipment with packaging requirements. So something like their, their S4 speaker was a speaker, but it was also designed to fit in a truck. Right. So, um, I mean, they, in my opinion, were the, the early innovators around packaging and around uh, getting things on the road. Uh, Light and Sound Design, another uh, great touring company that really understood the the necessity for packaging and space efficiency too. I mean, so you know, most of most of the Christie Lights ideas are are borrowed, or should I say, stolen, and maybe just improved upon a little bit here and there. But uh, but you just seem to I, take it to an extreme. I mean, with the I, you know, I I always remembered the marked out tape on the floor for your truck packs. You did that before anybody else did that, or I never saw well, anyone else what? do that. You know, I, I'd, I'd love to say we did, but I, I kind of owe Eric Pierce from show lights uh, for that one. To okay. be honest, okay. but we, we were good at stealing the good ideas. Let's yeah. But your shop way. was the first time I ever saw that. And I remember somebody yeah. explaining to me, yeah, this is exactly a truck pack. So we pack everything up in, in this little tape rectangle yeah. here. And I'm like, wow, that's, is so simple, but so friggin' obvious and, and brilliant. You yes. Know? And, uh, but again, I mean, that helped us a lot. Yeah. The case, the case thing was, was a little odd because sometimes you had a case that had to fit a Martin pal and, and an IntelliBeam, you know, in the same size yes. case, which you could have put 12 IntelliBeams in, in a pal <laughs> case. Right. But, um, so, you know, I guess sometimes it was a little bit inefficient in searching right. for efficiency. You kind of maybe went too far. And trade found some, yeah, found some trade-offs. Yeah, um, for sure. But, you know, another one of those examples, and, and I could be wrong here, so punch me in the face if I am, but um, the way that you pay your reps, the, your reps have a very unique uh, situation yeah. where they're basically treated as sort of micro businesses inside your business. It's yes. a very entrepreneurial system. It, it is. And I think when we look at our industry, uh, most customers are conducting business and buying from and placing their trust in the rep that they're dealing with. Right. And, and, and uh, our reps really are, fashioned in the form of partners. So uh, a, a Christie Lights rep is someone who participates in the profits of their portfolio, uh, has the type of decision-making that a partner would have, meaning they make decisions on crew, vendors, pricing, right. Uh, right. you know, all business elements, the, the rep is deputized to make those decisions. Now it places a lot more responsibility on the shoulders of a rep, but uh, it also creates an environment of, of partnership where our job is really to support our rep team and work with them towards an outcome. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I'm the rep thing's not for everybody because uh, it does take a greater, uh, let's say level of business acumen. Um, it takes a, a level of decision-making and responsibility that, that you use the word entrepreneur and, and thank you for that. Cause I think there's a real slice of entrepreneurial, uh, a skill set that, that yeah. has to go in there. Well, yeah. they, they can easily lose money on a gig as opposed to making right. a whole bunch. And, you sure. know, remarkably, 
your people who do really well on it tell me it's the most incredible, cutting edge, amazing system ever. And then on a good year, on a good year, it's a great system. And then there's a a few guys. Yeah, there's a few guys. (laughs) Well, yeah, COVID was rough, uh, you know, but but uh, there's there's a few guys who have told me, yeah, it, it just doesn't work out. And I know those are the guys who aren't maybe taking really good care of their clients because, you know, it's almost like a cross rental sort of program, right? Like they're, they're basically doing the rental to the client and you're providing them the gear and infrastructure and people and all of that stuff to do yeah, that. Yeah, it's, so. it's, it's somewhat like that. It's maybe a little more like a, uh, I, I'd come back to that word profit share because in some shows, uh, there's going to be a better financial outcome than in others. Yeah. And there is an alignment between the rep and the company about how that pie is split. So a, a rep is able to price a job any way they, they choose, but we both share in the consequence, the financial. Uh, I see. Yeah. So, um, yeah, well, that's, we, what, yeah. That's, what we see though is, is, is reps, and the company in in alignment around around outcomes that we're we're, we're trying to achieve, and I think that's where the the, the strength comes from. Is that yeah. it's it, it's a strange thing to hear an employer say this, but the higher the rep's compensation, the better it is for Christie Lights. Hey, because they're making money, you're making money. You know, exactly. It's, it's like a commission salesperson uh, relationship Correct. where you know if a guy, if you're paying a guy, you know, three hundred and fifty grand in commission, obviously you're making you know more yeah. than he is. You're doing pretty well, uh, so bring it. You know, uh, yeah. Exactly. I, I love paying huge commission checks. You know, because <laughs> that means we yeah. made money. So, yeah. uh, yeah. yeah, no, I just, again, I think it's, it's innovative. It's, uh, you know, I think one of the downfalls of any sales related job is when you put a high salary, um, in the mix and it tends to make people kind of rest on their laurels and kick back a little bit. And I'm not saying all people, like there's a lot of people who are driven regardless of what they're paid. I'm one of those people, but, right. um, you know, I've never worked for money or a paycheck or anything. You know, I hope that there's one coming someday, but you know, uh, but it's, it's not been what's driven me. I, I like to actually, I like to win. I like to take care of people. You know, I like, I like doing it for, for those right reasons and stuff. Right. I love that comment about liking to win. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I know, uh, we're similar in that regard. It must be a Canadianism. Although all our teams are losing, Edmonton just freaking beat my team. Damn it! I don't know what the hell happened there. Like, how did Edmonton? How did this McDavid guy get so damn good? You know, he's like Gretzky too. Man, oh man! Well, I'm not even keeping track these days. The Canadians. It used to be that the the only teams were Canadian. Now yeah. it's a little bit the other way, to yeah. say the least. Well, they, they don't even get in the playoffs anymore. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. You know, it's, I've it's, got, yeah, I've, I've, I've uh, abandoned Canada. I've, we we're, I'm now fully American. Yeah. Of course, of course I love my homeland, but it's, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's not so bad here in America. I'll, no, I'll no, it's, it's damn good. Uh, although I am going back up to Canada for the summer this year, it's the first time ever. I've always threatened to do it cause I have a house up in the Banff area, right? Canmore. Yeah. yeah Canmore. And, um, and you know, I always go for a couple weeks in the summer and I'm sitting here going, 
why don't I just spend the whole summer there? Because, you know, my business is completely virtual. I don't like I travel, but uh, I don't go into an office or anything. So what difference does it make if I'm sitting up in the mountains in Canada? So finally this year, I'm leaving in June and and coming back in September. So uh, really, really looking forward to that. So, you know, one of the things, and you and I discussed this recently, we went out for lunch and, and uh, so I know the answer, but you were super early on COVID and I don't mean getting it. I mean, reacting to it or, or acting to it. Like you were, you were so far ahead of the curve. I mean, me, John Wiseman, Featherstone, Eric Loader, Ben Saltzman, we had this group, uh, of of guys that was just talking about, hey, what's this all about? What's it going to mean? What's going to happen? And I created this thing called Day 91, where I said, basically, you know, we all agree this thing's going to last about 90 days, right? We're going to come back out of it in June. And so, you know, my thought was, what do you want you and your business to look like on day 91? Start preparing for that right. now, right? And I was off by about probably 370 days or something, you know? <laughs> I, I was a little bit off, you know? It was like 391, not 91. Right. But, um, but you know, here comes Huntley, like so early doing, doing the things that none of us wanted to, but we all knew we had to do eventually, but you did them at a point where it probably saved your business and, uh, saved people's jobs who would have otherwise lost their jobs. Had you not made those decisions? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I had, I was fortunate and then we had a little bit of a, if you want to call it a, a rehearsal with SARS, which broke out in the early 2000s in Toronto and a few other places. And I saw the immediate reaction when, when this, this uh, infectious disease broke out and how it impacted um, the industry. It, it, SARS only was around for a brief period and, and it was snuffed out very early, but in a very short order, we, we had seen tons of shows cancel. Uh, I called it right in some respects, but I called it wrong in others. I, I, I really saw the whole corporate world just shutting down. Uh, liability, uh, you know, the whole, the whole issue around not wanting to be associated with any illness in your corporate gathering. I mean, that to me was, was, uh, a conviction I held pretty strongly that the corporate side of things was really going to take a long time to come back. Uh, the the other side of the equation that and quite frankly, sorry, but that, that was probably more about liability than Correct. than fear or or reality. It was it was yeah. just like, hey, we're going to get sued a whole bunch. We better back off on this stuff here. You yeah. Know? And it's a very easy thing. You know, a corporation can cancel an event. It's not the heartbeat of their business there. It's important, but it's discretionary. So right. very easy for them to, to just cancel these events. And we saw that with SARS. We, we, you know, I saw just tremendous cancellations everywhere, but we didn't see the music industry stop. I always thought the rock and roll industry was just one of these consensually based deals. I buy a ticket. I take my chances. I go to the show. Yeah. Uh, I expected the music industry to have some life left in it. 
you know, maybe, um, maybe some bands were not going to play, but I thought there'd be something. So I was wrong with that. I was, I was certainly wrong with how quickly it came back um, in the, in the concert side of things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, but I mean, I think when you do the math and you say, okay, if, if, uh, if the shutdown is, if, if they're going to shut us down completely, um, how do you get back out of this? You know, how, how do people have to feel to feel ready to go? And it, it really seemed to me that there was a lot of fear and that even if people were given the opportunity, maybe they'd still not attend jobs or, or shows. So it, it's, it's nice to, to uh, get uh, some kind of acknowledgement about making an early call that was successful, but we probably overreacted a bit. I, in hindsight, I wouldn't have closed the, the, the Broadway operation that quickly right. because Broadway came back quickly. So yeah, but Broadway uh, was hard. I mean, you know, if you yeah. look at, you know, specifically like world stage and, you know, some of the companies yeah. that relied on specifically or only exclusively the New York market, we lost You're a right. few companies there, you know, and yeah. because it went completely dark and then, you know, oh. reopened again in a big way. But, um, but, you know, again, I mean, in reality, we're talking about like, you started to act pretty significantly right. early, like what, March, April? Oh yeah, March. We were, but you know, again, Marcel, when SARS hit Toronto in the early 2000s, we saw that month show cancellations like we'd never seen. Just boom, 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 boom. Yeah. And if if that disease had picked up, it would have been, uh, you know, a, a magnet order of magnitude worse. But again, I want to, I want to just make sure, and this may seem like I'm blowing skirt up your, your skirt and maybe I am here, but the, the thing is you started acting pretty significantly in March. And as I recall, PRG went from roughly 7,000 employees, including touring personnel down to like 500 in June or late June. And right. so they were, and so two months was a long time when, when yes. you're talking about what was going down between March and June, yeah. like it got really ugly, really fast. And so they carried, you know, a lot of staff quite a bit longer than you did. Yeah, and you're right. I, you know, again, I remember talking to people at other companies at Solo Tech at uh, PRG and them commenting to me saying, you know, what did Huntley know? Like, where did he get his information? You know, because at first they were going, Oh my God, that's it. He's going out of business. You know, that's it. You know, this is Huntley's fire sale. You know, that's all he's doing here. But then as time went on, it was like, you know, this guy knew what he was doing. You know, this guy made some good moves. I I would have looked like a real idiot had it only lasted 12 weeks. You would have, yeah, you would have, you would have, but you know, in hindsight, you look like a friggin' genius. You look like, I think, you know, yeah, I I do. I, I, I think the SARS thing was, it was a great teacher. Yeah. I think, um, part of it's a math exercise, which is how long do you want to carry a dormant distribution center, Mm -hmm. uh, versus at what point is it cheaper to do a restart? Mm Mm-hmm. And when, when we, we, we took a hard look at the math and uh, 
we, we felt we arrived at a, at a compromise. We, we, we kept enough places open. We didn't touch the UK. We kept Canada rolling. We closed a couple, one spot in Canada and a few spots in the US. So we kind of hedged our bets, but, but I think acting early helps because you reach a point in a pandemic where you're, if you're, if you wait too long, then the benefit of closing is lost. Yeah. It's a, it's a diminishing benefit <laughs> yeah. you know, from day one on basically. So it, it, yeah. it, it, exactly. I do. I mean, for the record, I, uh, I would have done better uh, moderating that closure. I could have kept two more shops open. Mm-hmm. Hindsight being 2020 and that would have worked out ideally. So, well, if hindsight were 2020, you probably would have hoarded moving lights and grand MA2 consoles, you know, but, uh, you know, I mean, who knew, who knew, you know, MA like MA2 consoles are the one that's most shocking to me because in 2020, mid 2020, we were selling those consoles for uh, even late 2020, we were selling them for like 12, $13,000 globally you know that was pretty much the market for them at that point and now like we sold one yesterday i think for thirty thousand. and you know i mean recently for a used ma3 i saw one go for 65 or sixty-three thousand for a lightly used ma3 i mean people it's it's a it's a batshit wacky market out there right now because if somebody needs something and they've got a band on tour you know, you're not going to yeah. sacrifice the tour for 10 grand, you know, if I got to pay a little bit of an upcharge on something, but yeah. at the same time, I mean, there's some gougers out there and, and those gougers will be remembered when times get back to normal and True. everybody always remembers the guy that screwed him, you know, when you were down. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. uh, Agreed. so yeah, but you know, again, I, 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 commend, it's amazing, isn't it? Oh, I, it it's, what you said about, the, the, the price changes, it, it's yeah. fascinating. I mean, we were selling Mac 101s and, and trying to move them. And, and all of a sudden they're selling for twice, literally twice. And you're yeah. going, this is, this, this feels like a crazy dream. No, that's across the board. Like, you know, Vipers, Vipers were down as low as a thousand nine hundred and fifty bucks. I was seeing Vipers selling for now they're over two grand again. I I've seen them go as high as three grand recently. It, it's all supply and demand. It's like, when yeah. there's none on the market and you suddenly throw 20 of them out on the market, you're getting $3,000 yes. $3, for a Viper that a year ago was 1200 or $1,000. So, uh, you know, it, it's, and we're paid to, my company's paid to pay attention to that and to be sort of the experts at that. But it's impossible to be an expert at something that's entirely unpredictable. And it's based on like, you know, if somebody suddenly specs a show with a thousand Vipers on it, guess what? The price is going to go up, you know? And yes, Huntley, we, we supplied for a tour recently and I've told this story before, uh, probably even on a recording here, but, um, it was, I, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was a couple hundred moving lights, probably Roby fixtures. And the only place in the world we could get them from was Asia. And we moved a lot of stuff from Asia over here to your company as well. We, I was we say, sold we, you guys we, a bunch of lights. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, because Asia took the longest to reopen. So literally companies were either closing or turning their rental company into a virtual studio or whatever. Right. Uh, they were doing anything they could to survive, but they were using lighting or sound equipment as currency. And so a couple hundred lights, let's say it was, 
$600,000. And um, I don't even think it was that much. I think it was like 300,000 or 400,000. And shipping was like another three or $400,000. Oh because God. they had to have them oh. by next week Ouch. from Asia Ouch. to the United States, right? <laughs> For rehearsals. So they had to be teched in Asia before they came too. Like they couldn't just be taken out of storage and put on an airplane. They had to be teched because they were going straight into rehearsals over here. So, I mean, it's probably one of the hardest deals we've ever put together. And freight was like a half a million dollars. It was insane. It was insane. And we're seeing. That's a a tough pill to swallow when you're the buyer. It's brutal. And, you know, I was talking actually with John Wiseman about this today because, uh, you know, he said he's having these difficult conversations all the time where it's like, I know I quoted you, you know, 75,000 a week, but now it's 110. Sorry. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, the, the price went up, my costs went up, you know, and yeah. at the end of the day, I said, so who pays that? Like, is that the ticket buyer? And he said, no, because that's the only guy who has a fixed price. He bought a ticket. You can't go back and buy the ticket back right. and sell him one for twice as much, you know? And I said, you know, there's got to be a moment that comes here where there's something on a ticket that says, this is the suggested price. There's going to be an upcharge. We're just not sure how much yet. <laughs> you know, when you come, when you come to the door of the arena, we may hit you up for some, yeah, we'll hold life. you up by your ankles and shake you. So, so some coins fall out, but That's yeah, great. I mean, you know, again, I don't want to, I, 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 I don't think that, you're a complete genius, but I do think that you made some very smart plays on, on this COVID thing. And, you know, again, I know it sounds very dramatic to say, saved your company. You're a very healthy company and you've, you've made some really good decisions over the years, but you know, a company that size to have revenue taken away from you completely for a year or whatever is like, we learned in the limited amount of time that you and I went to school. Cause I think I went even less than you did. Um, we, we learned about this thing called a cash reserve, you know, that you're supposed to, yes. but you know, business school, which is sort of school of hard knocks for me taught you to have maybe 30 or 60 days in reserve, right? Meaning yeah. available capital yeah. for that period of time to cover your expenses, not 18 months, <laughs> you know, nobody know. taught you that, right? I know. No, I'm real. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it became a complete different game, didn't it? it yeah. I mean, certainly for us, it was a game of survival, but using very sort of different tools to try and get through it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, which, so then, you know, that sort of takes me to a, another point where you, you actually brought in a partner, you sold half your business, uh, just coming right out of COVID. And, you know, I know one of the things you mentioned here earlier is that this is a very capital intensive business, um, that yeah. we're in and, you know, it's no surprise that most of the industry is, is, you know, private equity backed or venture backed or whatever. Sure. Um, because, you know, you need access to capital. That's not bank capital. You need like more patient, more entrepreneurial capital that you can sit at the table and make sense out of, I've got to buy $5 million worth of lights and put it out at a hundred thousand dollars a week for 12 weeks. And then I don't know what's going to happen, but you right. know, it makes a lot of sense, you know, right now. So, um, well, yeah, the, 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 the move to bring an investor in is sort of part of our lineage in the sense that Christie lights has had partners, uh, 
over the decades, we opened in Vancouver with partners. Ken Alexander, who's my VP of rentals, was a founding partner of Vancouver. Right. Terry Higgs, founding partner in Seattle. So very familiar with, with equity partnerships in the company. And we had an unusual opportunity to uh, bring a partner in uh, that wasn't your typical private equity debt structuring piece. So yeah. uh, there's a, there's a, there was a certain amount of uh, our asset base in land and buildings. Um, it was all sort of wrapped into the same uh, financial package. And by bringing a partner in, really what we did was eliminated any debt whatsoever from the balance sheet uh, and still left us with a, with a, a good stack of cash so that we could look at the next five to 10 years as an opportunity to do what we did do best in the way of our growth and expansion without the uncertainties associated with, let's just say nervous banks. Yeah. So um, our, our deal was not one that involved any leverage. And so it's a little different than, than what you would find in a, in a typical uh, private equity thing. This is really an investor who's, a partner like our other other partners I've had. And it, it was, you know, it's been good for us because it's allowed us to continue to push forward into Germany, for instance, where we opened in Berlin recently. And it it allows us to make commitments that we're confident in being able to keep, whether that's yeah. new staff, whether that's uh, vendor relationships, um, and it's nice to not have, obviously, any rent payments in, in a good number of our facilities uh, or, or mortgage payments or, or debt payments. So right. it was, we could have got through uh, without that move. But what we knew was we would be playing a defensive game for a, a couple of years. And uh, I, I was just at a point in my career where... I really didn't want to have to go on defense for that long. So this, this has been a nice solution for us. It's, it's no, you know, it, it, it wasn't planned for, but we, like I said, have run the business with equity partners for years. So we were, you know, well, uh, suited to consider that option. And it, and it's, well, and it, it appears they they've allow you to run the company too. Like, you, you know, it's, it's still Christie lights. It's still Huntley in charge. It's you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't really know. I mean, our staff obviously were aware, but, but no one really felt a difference. And I, I'm still the decision maker. I still own the majority of the business and I'm still, um, you know, highly invested in the company's success. So it really was just a matter of let's take out the traditional bank. Let's bring an investor in and, the, the, the uh, investor. That's amazing. I, it appears to have been a great move. You know, it, it, uh, I mean, we do a lot of business together and just from what I've seen, you getting know, the paid company, in time? we're getting paid on time and, and yes. <laughs> uh, everyone seems pretty happy over there. And, you know, I know I've talked with you a few times, you seem to be doing really well. So tell me about this expansion. So, I mean, whenever I see companies expand into Europe and, you know, I, I won't mention any names, but there's one company in particular who went into the UK and it seemed to hurt them a little bit. It, it, uh, 
uh, didn't go incredibly well and maybe they're fixing it. I don't know. But um, I, I think usually companies realize that it's a lot harder than they expected. Like there's so many different rules and different taxation, yeah. different financing, different, just different everything. Yes. Yeah. And I think uh, part of what made the UK, um, and are you talking Germany or? Well, first the UK. Yeah, the UK. Sure. What, what made the UK work, uh, you know, I've got to take my hat off to what I would say our founding staff, you know, Andy Strachan, Roy Hunt, Matt Eilert, um, a, a whole group of folks who were well battle tested in that market and looking for their next, their, their next opportunity. And, but that wasn't was like, an acquisition, was it? No, no, I, I by not doing an acquisition, acquisitions are difficult for us because it's, it, it, can be very uh, hard to bring all the equipment and people together in a way that 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 fits our system. Um, I, you know, the UK for me is sort of the founding birthplace of our industry. Yeah. So yeah. it was really exciting for me to be there. Um, growing up in Canada, we would import all of our lighting equipment, Avo product, Thomas Power cans, you know, multi-core. Uh, we, we got it all from, from Britain. So there was a familiarity there for sure. And, and uh, a lot of clients that were doing business in, in, in both marketplaces. So there was some momentum out of the gate that really helped. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, uh, it, you're right. It's not easy. There's culturally, there's a lot of differences, but um we set up there in 2017. So we, we really just sort of incrementally grew it. And, uh, uh, it, it, the UK thing is, is gone very well for us. I'm very pleased about it. Um, except for Brexit. Brexit Brexit is just uh, like, I mean, what it's done for touring over there and just complexities to do business is just so complicated. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that's where I, even since Brexit, I think some things have improved to sort of mitigate the, those complexities, but you're right. The sentiment of Brexit has really pushed the markets into a two different market mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and setting up in mainland Europe was in part uh, a response to that. It was also an opportunity that, uh, you know, to work in a facility that was already established and to work with Claire brothers who, uh, you know, need, uh, need no introduction. I mean, they, yeah. Yeah, work, working with those guys has, has been uh, terrific for us because they've been in that market for years. And years. Are we so, talking about Berlin now? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Setting so, up in, in Berlin was Berlin was an acquisition. How did, what, what's Berlin? Tell me yeah, about Berlin. Berlin, Berlin uh, a company called black box music had been uh, running out of the same facility that, that Claire acquired. And we took on the lighting portion of that. So we're, we are entirely separate to Claire in the sense that uh, separate businesses, there's no equity partnership, but we are part of the same compound. 
And oh, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah. I did, what they're doing in Berlin is a very miniature version of of what they've done in Lidditz around some rehearsal space and a number of other production companies. Ah. Uh, and and arguably Berlin is the touring music center of Germany uh, and, and a good location for, for live music. Um, so we, we've had a good, we've had a good start there for sure. And it, it's a challenge in a different language, uh, in a, in a different, um, marketplace, but we're, we're, we're seeing a lot of crossovers bands that we do in America that are touring mainland Europe that, this is a, this is a so, new having Berlin now. Do, from what I understand, and I'm fairly ignorant to all of this, so correct me. But a UK-based company can only make like three stops or whatever on a tour, unless you have a, a location in somewhere else in Europe or somewhere in Europe. I guess is what you would say now. Yeah, I think what you're you're touching on are the transportation regulations. Correct. Um, so, you know, those can be resolved by, uh, a mainland European trucking company being hired to pick up equipment in the UK and then tour the whole uh, mainland Europe. Right. So there's other issues. Uh, there's a, a 90 day maximum for British citizens working in oh, mainland. Jesus Christ. So if you're on a tour that's longer than 90 days in a, I, I, I forget whether it's a one year period or whatever, but so you've got to count the days that, that you're going to be on the road. Um, so there, there's certainly a, a negative there. Uh, and then you've got the issue of carnets on the rental side. So, so now it's like Canada in America in terms of needing the border crossing paperwork. Right. They're not, they're not deal breakers, but they, they, uh, bring inefficiencies into the system. So if you've got a three-week tour in Europe, you may as well pull it out of Europe. Yeah. A mainland, yeah, that is. In the you know three years ago, if there was a three-week tour in mainland Europe, uh, it could be just as convenient to take it out of the UK, and that, and that's still going to happen too. I don't I don't mean that that's dead, but there's a greater propensity to to yeah. They they certainly <laughs> didn't uh, consult with the touring industry when they. <laughs> went through with this Brexit thing because it's so friggin' complicated. It's unbelievable. Yeah. You know, like I yeah. I had originally with Gearsource, we originally opened a business in Europe in uh we based it out of um uh the Netherlands because that's oh. what everyone told us to do. You know, yes. that's where it's yeah. gonna be the easiest and everything. It was the most complicated disaster I've ever been a part of. I mean it was we were at least initially we were spending more money on just regulatory stuff than we were making. I mean, it it was literally, it was cost prohibitive to be there, you know, and I endured, I, we stuck it out and then we eventually got rid of the company there and, and behaved as a, uh, uh, you know, just a a deal maker basically. So we don't have a physical entity there anymore. We don't need to. Um, We got some bad advice, I think is really what it, what it came down to, but just well, I, so I, complex. I, VAT is so complex. Yeah, the whole, you know, I really start to appreciate America when I look at, I can set up a business in America in 24 hours. It's taken me three months in Germany. Oh my goodness. 
I, wow. I personally had to go down to a German consul in Orlando and sign papers as part of the process. Jesus, that is so, crazy. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's um, you but, know we all have our, we all have our preferences, but when it comes to doing business, I. I, I quite enjoy America. Yeah, me too. To I'm, I'm with you. Well, except I'll tell you. So I, I own a bunch of trademarks and, and I, um, so anyways, I've, I've been through the U S uh, patent and trademark office and it's a nightmare. And my sure. girlfriend, her brother, she's British and her brother has a uh, football training business in, in England. And she went through and got him a trademark in England in like three days. I mean, she had the whole thing completed, signed, sealed, delivered. She had the trademark nice. in her hands in three days. I was like, that's impossible. Show me this. And nice. she showed me the certificate and it's the trademark. And I'm like, well, there's something where you're a little more efficient than us for, for once. <laughs> hey, do you, do you, uh, uh, off topic a little bit, but related to Berlin, do you know, uh, do you remember a band in probably the eighties, early nineties, a touring club band called click? In Canada? Oh, shoot. I, I, I'm embarrassed to say I, I don't know. I, I pride myself on Canadian homegrown bands. That's, well, that's, they were mostly uh, in Western Canada, but I mean, they were right. from, I think they were from Ontario originally, um, but they were a, a very, very, very good Rush tribute band. Oh, and, shoot. uh, I, I mean, they I were playing, over these guys. they were playing clubs for, you know, eight, nine grand a week and stuff. They were making real money playing clubs. Um, Whoa. Uh, the, the singer keyboard player was a guy named Keith Retson Spalding, uh, who was a Toronto guy, but anyways, the drummer's name is Randy Black and he lives in Berlin and plays for a big metal band there. I forget which one now, but he used to play for Primal Fear. And I think now he's in a different, same sort of size, Ooh. big, big metal band. Uh, There's Berlin. a lot, you know, Europe's got some really good metal, metal acts. Yeah. I, I love it. I mean, these guys are heavy, heavy. And he's yeah, the most, metal. he's the most technical. I mean, he played in a Rush tribute band for years and years. Yeah. He's a super technical, highly skilled drummer. And Randy it's so, Black. Randy Black. Okay. It's, it's so funny to see him playing in a, in a speed metal band like that, you know, but, awesome. uh, but they do very well. They, they, do all these big metal festivals and stuff. And I'll, I'll text you later. I'll tell you the name of his band. It's just escaped me right at this moment. Um, yeah. Primal fear. Yeah. Yeah. My, my son is a real death metal fan. So I, I follow, uh, yeah. Randy's yeah, cool. a really good dude. I, I talked to him a few days ago cause Edmonton beat Calgary and he had to send me a nice little punch in the face over that one. So, uh, cause he's, he lived in Edmonton most of his life. I think he's from Edmonton. Uh, Randy originally, but, yeah, yeah, but Click yeah. was a very, very good band. I'll, I'm going to, I'm going to look them up. I'm a death metal fan. You got me. You're a death metal fan. Get out of oh, here. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta be kidding me. I'll have to send you some videos. He does all these drum videos where, you know, he's got video cameras set up on the stage, like around his drum kit and stuff. So you can hear him, but you can't really hear the singer and the <laughs> you can't hear a lot of that stuff. You can just see him like it's a workout every friggin' song. I and the, the kick oh, drums yeah. are just going like this constantly and it's friggin' a workout. But uh, very, very talented. He used to play in Annihilator, 
Yeah. Uh, right after Click, I think he went and played in Annihilator, and he's played for Wasp, and he's toured for all kinds of bands. Their drummer dies, cool. and Randy goes and of course. plays for him for a while. Spontaneous combustion. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so um, I'm assuming you have further development plans in Europe? You know what? I think we've got our hands full at this at this point. Yeah. Uh, really uh, establishing Berlin properly will take us a few years. Um, there's still uh, a certain footprint in America that we want to get back to. Yeah. Um, so it, yeah, there's a lot of growth opportunity in the U.S. right now. I mean, yeah, uh, both uh, you know, um, organically and through acquisition. You know, there's sure there's uh, and again, I want to get into the debt topic here soon because, uh, well, actually, let's talk about it. I mean, there's sure I know a lot of companies, both small and large. And, you know, we've seen one go down in a pretty fiery mess, uh, the world stage yeah. thing. Um, but I know some a lot of companies, many I'm friends with who took the easy debt, you know, the crack that the government was handing out uh, during covid and are now, so, you know, a lot of companies said, hey, look, it's really easy. It's pretty low interest. It's like, you know, around 3% and it's like a mortgage. You got 30 years to pay it back. So why wouldn't I take it? I'll take as much as they'll give me. And right. so, you know, relatively small production companies were taking a couple million dollars in debt. And right. so they spent heavily, you know, they didn't adjust yep. their spending well enough. They didn't do what Huntley did. And so they spent a lot of that money. And now what they're realizing is they've got this thing called a balance sheet that the bank is paying a huge amount of attention to when they're going to the bank or to the leasing company because now they have to buy all these new lights that somebody wants for a show or sound equipment or whatever it is. And they can't buy anything because yeah. they've got this big debt on their balance sheet now. And yeah, they've got 30 years to pay for it. But if you can't buy any lights or sound equipment in those 30 yes. years, you're in a bit of trouble, you know? And so I've heard that multiple times from people saying, I didn't realize how big a problem this was going to be. Yeah. It, the, the debt thing, the debt, the debt thing's interesting because sometimes, you know, I've seen some businesses, take other people's money and really successfully scale up with it and do well. I mean, if, if you've got a business that is going to take capital and do well with it, then, Hey, leverage is your friend. Um, I think on the other hand, um, it, it can be easy to get sort of over your skis by buying assets that. uh, have a shorter lifespan than, than, you know, maybe your debt repayment. You mentioned a, a 30 year uh, repayment plan. Well, we, we, we know that most of our assets don't last 30 years. So right. how does that, and, and I think, I think uh, on one hand, money has been so cheap. Sometimes I kick myself and I go like, damn, I mean, there's plenty of opportunities uh, with with cheap money that can that could work out the right way if you're willing to borrow borrow to do it. So I really think it's that balance between using borrowed money but doing it in a very disciplined way, and that's hard. Uh, 
and 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 not borrowing at all. Um, you know, it, it, if you don't borrow, it's really hard to grow. Of course, of, of course. But the, the trouble that I've seen people getting into wasn't because they were defaulting on loan payments. Um, it, recently, most companies anyways, it's covenants. And, yes. and it's banks yeah. that no longer want to be in this industry. And yeah, so, exactly. you know, they're just calling their notes left and right. And, you know, the SBA backed loans, that's likely not going to happen. They're not just going to suddenly come and say, well, I know we told you you could have 30 years to pay this back, but you know, there's these funky covenants back here and that you're missing on. And you know, now we want our money back. That's probably not going to happen. So you're safe there. But like you said, if you're buying a three-year asset with a 30-year loan, that never works out well. I mean, think of people who buy a car and then realize they can't sell it because they've got a six-year loan on a three-year car. They want the new one in three years. Or iPhones even. Like I know people who do these iPhone deals where you know, you're know, you paying four years for an iPhone at $20 a month or whatever it is. And you, know, you want the new one next year. Well, guess what? You're upside down. So now instead of $1,200 for the new one, you're paying $2,000. And that just keeps adding on. And next thing you know, you got a $10,000 iPhone in your hand. You know, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. No, that's a good. That's a good point. It's a good point. It, it's really, it, it's it's really about use of capital, isn't it? You've got to keep your gear busy. You need you need high utilization rates, and uh, that that whole buffer thing. I mean, you you spoke earlier about having cash in reserve or some money set aside in in you know sixty days to ninety days would be a long time to have that we'd ever have thought of having to float a business. Right. Um, and I, I think, you know, I, I think the, the key to the key thing to recognize in our industry is that we're managing capital and that we have to keep that capital well deployed at whatever scale. And if you're going to take, if you're small and you're going to take $2 million off a bank for 30 years, you've got to manage that capital well. And if you do, you'll do fine. Yeah. Uh, and, and, well, uh, no, as an example, I mean, if, if you borrow that $2 million and, and you bring back in the first year, one and a half million, and in the second year, another one and a half or 2 million. Sure. And then in the third year, you're able to start selling off the assets and either, you know, re-engaging that capital yeah. or paying off the bank and you still got those back profits and stuff. That's all good stuff. Like if you're managing it properly and using the debt properly, but I mean, I'm talking about like, you know, people buying boats with the debt or, or, <laughs> or paying employees yeah. that they, they yeah, don't yeah. want to let go because, or, Oh, or- I've known his family for 25 years. I can't let that guy go. But you know, you, you, you're killing your business by doing that, yeah. you know? Well, and, and I think even discounting a show too much. I mean, you yeah. if if you're going to lower your rates um, and, and and set pricing bars that just don't give you that return. Yeah, it's a fascinating business that way because most of us, you and I are the same, Marcel. We came to it because we we chose it. We we really love it. Yeah. Uh, and and then we, you you've got to learn the discipline along the way to to survive. I mean, there's all these different disciplines, right? One of them includes not getting caught up in drugs. Another one yeah. includes managing yeah. capital, right? Another one includes building the team based on on the right people. So, yeah. 
Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, I don't know very many people in our industry who who went to business school and have an MBA in in you know business or finance or whatever, yeah. and then said, "Hey, I'm going to go take all these MBAs and I'm going to go start a lighting company." You know, that just didn't happen. So, uh, you know, it's 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 a funny business in that way. So, you know, uh, I mean, aside from debt, because I think debt is going to stick with us here for a couple of years as a significant problem. I think, you know, it's good to world, get that yeah. world stage, I think was a big warning shot. Um, right. I think that we're going to see some sort of small to mid-sized companies that sort of missed the acquisition uh, craze and weren't sexy enough or had a bad balance sheet or just didn't have the right, right. blend of stuff to make them acquirable. Uh, yeah. or probably were carrying too much debt would be my guess. Yep. I think we're going to see some of those companies that are going to struggle. I mean, they're just now having to start paying back those, uh, the SBA loans. And again, they're pretty yeah. easy payments, but you're stuck with them for 30 years now. And well, it, worse it, than the like, payment is the balance sheet hit. Right. It's like these student loans that go on forever. Yeah. You know, I was talking with Artie, Artie, the leasing guy. And yep. uh, Artie said to me, Sometimes what he's doing is he's putting together five small leases to make like a half million dollar deal for some of these guys now, you know, cause they wow. need, they need like a hundred moving lights and they don't, they've got a bad balance sheet because of all this debt on there. And yeah. so they're not qual. And plus not only a bad balance sheet, but you've got a year and a half of shitty P and L too. You know, you didn't make any yes. money. So yes. combine those two things. And we've got a couple of years to wait before your P and L looks good. And then your balance sheet's still going to carry some debt. So he can't get them leased for a half a million. So what he's doing is putting wow. together five uh, yeah. $100,000 deals because those are easy to get, right? Right. And I'm like, but, well, but then that's you start pretty to look crazy. At the, it is. Five, five origination fees. Yeah. You know, five, you know, yeah. Ouch. Like that becomes really expensive, yeah. painful money and you can't yeah. sell any of that gear and you can't, I mean, that's, that's frightening at that point. Like you're in, you're a slave to your business financially at that point. Right. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. other, other than the debt and, and, you know, there's a couple of obvious things, but post pandemic challenges, like what do you think are some of the biggest things? Again, let's take away the two obvious ones, gear and people because right. both are in very short supply. Both are very challenging. You know, people, uh, the, the pay has gone up, like day rates have gone up so much right now. And, yeah. um, uh, you know, all kinds of challenges associated with that gear, I believe is going to correct itself relatively soon. I think certainly by the end of this year, we're going to see constant flow coming from suppliers and, um, you know, the challenge there is, is still just going to be in the math, you know, like who, you know, when you put all the math together on these deals and on people's financial statements and everything else that's going on, buying a $10,000 moving light to do a, a 12 week tour at a $150 a week or $200 a week, it's, ah, it's a tough deal to put together right now. Yeah. But, so what do yeah. you think, sure. aside from gear and people, what, what are some of the biggest challenges? That's a, that's a great, yeah, that's a great question. I think there's practical ones and then there's, I think, sort of psychological or emotional ones. And I, I, maybe I'll start with the psychological ones. I think challenges for a lot, a lot of us are, we're back to a long-term game. This is not a, it, it, if, 
you're not prepared to be part of a five-year plan at, at minimum, uh, it's, it's brutal. I mean, there's, it, it's busy right now, but we're still in a very volatile marketplace where we don't really know what it looks like next year. Hopefully it's good and busy still. Um, but it, it, it's, a, it's a digging out that requires any of us as industry participants to go, we got to think long-term, have to think long-term. Um, the viability of the live entertainment industry is unquestionable, whether it's theater, whether it's, it's music, um, even corporate events. This, this is part of the animal spirits that we as humans have deeply ingrained. And that's not even just Americans. Like that's, that's global. Like people, people want to get together and go to a concert or go to a trade show or go to a party or go to a whatever globally. Correct. So that part there, we can be very confident that that part exists. It's just in running a business and building a career, you've got to be comfortable with a longer time horizon. So I think that's the psychological part. I think, well, the other psychological part is being able to deal with uncertainty. So you're absolutely right. You mentioned a few other things we don't need to get into about supply chain or, or people. Uh, but there's so many things in the world changing right now that, that we have to be flexible uh, and be prepared to deal with whatever the next thing is served up. And, and, and we know that this isn't going back to 2019 in terms of how the world functioned. Uh, it, it, to your point, I hope you're right at the end of, at the end of this year that supply chain is reasonably uh, restored, but when, when it is restored, what does it look like? What are tariffs like, uh, you know, what are currency exchange rates? Still is going to be a problem. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right now it's $10,000 for us to ship a container from the U S to Berlin. I mean, it used to be 3,500. So, uh, you know, great. If that price gets cut in half by the end of the year, lovely, but it's still expensive. Yeah, Asia, so, Asia has gone from something like 7,000, I think we used to pay, or 6,500, to now it's like 27,000. It's insane. It's completely insane. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you, you, you throw in all these different issues in terms of what can affect the market. And I think we just have to be prepared that there'll be plenty of volatility plenty of unforeseen change. We don't know where it's coming from, but we know the market is real. We, we, we know that the demand for what it is we're involved with is not passing, but uh, so I think we've got to take the long-term. It's got to be a long-term view. But, but let me um, ask you this. So like, do you think there is a shift or has been a shift or will be a shift from where sort of the designer rules the roost to like the accountant and lighting shop might rule the roost a little bit where it's like, you know, because I know if you look back to 2019 and certainly a little bit in 2022 as well, but it was like, no, I need 500 moving lights. No, I need 800 moving lights. No, I need as many (laughs) we can fit in the truss. I need that many moving lights and add more truss so I can have more moving lights. And, you know, at the end of the day, like, are we going to get more practical there? Or are we just going to keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger? Yeah, I, I think 
the designer is always going to rule the roost. That doesn't mean they're going to get a designer is going to get everything they asked for. But I think we both know that if you were to pick one single point of influence on what makes a show look great, it's not it, a, a kit in and of itself is not going to make a show look great. Mm-hmm. Good packaging is important, but it's not going to make a show look great. But a good design a good operator are probably the single most influential element to how a show comes out. That's a good point. Yeah. So I think they're still going to rule the roost, but uh, uh, you know, as has always been the case, compromise and working together and, and, and sawing off between cost benefit and what, what have you. I think you're right, which is that trucks aren't any cheaper. Labor's not any cheaper. And, and, Designs that are inefficient um, just may not pass muster with production management and, and artists. Yeah. So, um, I think it's, you're totally it's funny right because we had that. somebody contact us uh, last week, not, not for a sale, but a friend of mine, a designer who has a tour in Europe right now and said, I need two uh, MA2 lights um, and we can't locate them and we need them for Europe, one and a backup. And um, so we got back to the designer, you know, a day later or something, and we couldn't locate any MA2 lights, but there were two MA3 fulls, <laughs> you know, will you take those instead? They're four times as much money. Yep. Sure. We'll take them, you know, and it's, wow. like, yeah, wow. I mean, it's, it's just, uh, it, it's just how it is right now. You know, it's, it's like yeah. I said, a half million dollars of lights with a half a million dollars in freight attached to it too. So uh, it's well it's unbelievable. yeah i i i think uh right now the economy's flush with a lot of uh money for ticket buyers we may see that change and 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 tours have to really shave their budgets and and uh to your point about uh designers that they'll be compromising a bit more but yeah uh, yeah so do you guys have a, a like a training or education program to bring on new people? Because I know a lot of the larger companies, yours would be one of those, are really starting to focus on bringing people from outside the industry because we all have to focus on that at yeah. this point. We need, you know, there's just been too many people who have left the industry per- permanently. And yeah. if it's going to keep growing at the rate that it's growing right now, obviously we need to, we need to recruit. So... We, you know, for the first time in 35 years, we, we produced a training manual. Uh, and actually, I'm very pleased with it. It's a, it's a, a lovely, comprehensive book that uh, is our first shot at providing some form of structured uh, training or education. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not looking at adopting sort of any formal uh, training programs, but we are doing more apprentice work. So we've got much more younger kids out on the road that are being placed in in positions of learning. You know, neophytes that uh, are are going to climb the ladder. So our our view is, generationally speaking, let's let's start dipping into the the youngest generation and 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 get many more of those players into the mix. Yeah, it's interesting. I had, a, I had a conversation about this last week with Sooner, and um, Sooner was telling me, she's involved in, in a, a... Everything. 
in well, everything. No, but she's involved in in a charitable thing that. Oh God! Uh, yeah, yeah. So, anyways, talked a lot about bringing people from outside the industry, and she said one of the common, uh, you know, misinformations out there is that we're carnies, you know, that the touring industry are a bunch of carnies. They don't make any money. They're all meth heads or whatever. And while at some point in life that might've been true, you know, nowadays it's actually a really good career. You know, a, you see the world B you make a very good wage, (laughs) you know, you're, you can easily make a hundred thousand dollars a year on tour. Uh, It's a great, you're right. It's it's a a good career. And, and it's, and it's got longevity too. You know, there's very little barriers. Because you right. don't need a degree, you're you're totally right. It's yeah. uh, a good attitude, a strong back, you know. And well, you and, know, uh, my my 22 year old son is out on Slipknot with no college education. Yeah, he's making more than my son who works at the Hyatt, managing the front desk and a whole bunch of people. Oh wow! Yeah. And and so my old my my eldest son is going. Hmm, what's up here? I've been slaving away at, in, in this industry, in the hospitality industry, and my young punk brother is uh, is making a lot more money. Yeah, and he calls me one day he's in Paris, the next day he's in freaking Berlin, the next day he's in Milan right. or whatever. Yeah, he's sending all these pictures of him with beautiful women, you know. <laughs> well, not quite, but yeah. it sounds good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, uh, I, I should actually get my son to listen to this because instead of being a race well, car actually, driver, I think maybe your I son, could put him on tour. Your, your son's racing career, I think, kind of trumps touring with the rock. I don't band, know. But... I don't know because you know the the earnings are backwards on that one. You know. <laughs> Nobody's earning anything except the people that I have to write checks to, trust me. But no, I mean, it, it's true. Like it, it is a very good uh, opportunity. It's a very good yes. potential career. And I think that's what people need to hear. So people need guys like you going to high schools uh, and, and speaking you know, and yeah. saying, hey, you know, uh, I know many of you are getting ready to go to college and that's a really great thing if you're going to go to college and you have a direction that's taking you to marketing or taking you to be a coder or taking you to be this or that. Yeah. However, here's an opportunity. You know, you can come an apprentice uh, in a shop, uh, you know, a lighting shop that ends up getting you out on the road where you're going to see all of these different cities. You're going to travel the world. And, you know, an average guy out there is making this kind of money or girl, um, yeah. you know, yeah, loads and, and of diversity, girls, doesn't matter what color or what gender you are. It? Yeah, no, I mean, that's the thing. Our business has, you know, with, with all, with all of whatever these movements that are going on right now, our business has always, in my experience, been about getting the job done. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that people haven't had a rough time. I mean, you know, there's pranks and yeah about shenanigans but uh we've been pretty uh pretty open to all comers yeah you just gotta survive (laughs) absolutely absolutely and you gotta learn tour bus etiquette you know if you you don't learn that you can't shit on the tour bus you're gonna get yeah yeah you're You're gonna have some problems (laughs) you know yeah so i mean what what do you tell those people like if if you know you've got young guys coming in or girls that are coming to start at Christie lights and they walk into the CEO's office, God forbid they get past security and your secretary and your secretary's <laughs> secretary and all of those other people that are stopping them from getting that's in your quite, office. They make it into Huntley's office 
and they say, you know, we want to do well in this industry. What should we do? What do you tell them? You know, I, uh, I think it's, I love telling them that you need two things, a good attitude and a good work ethic. Those two things will take you really far in the business. And I, you know, I think there's lots of signature moments that I've enjoyed in, in my career, but one of them was actually watching sooner, uh, with Motley Crue and dealing with Tommy Lee and, and going, you know, here's a young woman who's telling an old rock and roll drummer how best to light a particular segment in a song that Tommy's really all caught up in. And, uh, the point being is that any, any of anyone who's keen to grow in our business has it's not easy, but has a, a great runway. Yeah. And, and uh, I, I think sooner, I don't even know whether she went to college, but I think it was fun seeing. She did actually, she, she actually took lighting, uh, I think, or theater or something, but oh, okay. she, she sort of was going to go that theatrical route and then sort of mixed her love of, uh, seeing her first rock concert, which I think, as I recall, was smashing pumpkins. And right. she just went nuts. She was like, this is what I want to do. That's it. I'm, it's over. I want to do this. Well, there's, there's, there's where passion gets you. you yeah, know, that, exactly. That's a, a, exactly. A great, I mean, there's nothing story. like, you know, and I, I remember like one of the cool things about doing this podcast, the cool thing, the coolest thing, the only cool thing, cause it's not like I make money from it, but um, the cool thing about doing this podcast is I get to hear these stories and, you know, Cosmo telling me, I think it was Kiss. Yeah. I think he went and saw Kiss and, and just said, that's it. This is what I'm going to do. You know, I, I've got to do this. I'm in. This is my life. This is my future. And, you know, I love one of the old school stories that you hear over and over. And I think Cosmo was one of the ones who said it. And you've said similar things already. And I feel the same thing is, is you know, one of the things that I've always done is I say, yes, you know, when somebody says, can you, do you know how, can, can you, you know, I always say yes. And I figure it out later, you know, I yes, figure out how to do it. Right. And I mean, outside of safety things, like if, if someone says, you know, do you know how to, you know, lift or raise or lower this roof or whatever, I'm not going to do that, you know, or pyro, <laughs> I'm probably not going to do pyro, but you know, most things I'll say yes and I'll figure it out. And that, that's because, a great way to move forward, isn't it? It's yeah. a great way to go. Yeah. I, I mean, when you, when you become the guy who's like, no, no, I really don't do that. I only do this over here. I really don't do that. Well, no, I, you know, you kind of sort of narrow yourself out of a job. It's, it's, it's sort of a, a form of death, isn't it? It it's is. A, it's a yeah. slow death by very sharp needle point. <laughs> yeah. So what, what's, what's on your agenda? I mean, what's, what do you see for the future? You said the business is obviously very resilient. The industry is going to yeah. uh, survive and grow. Do we see it? Oh yeah. I think, you know, when you, if you're talking about the industry, I, I love to think of how the industry's already in the past 30 years, the, the, the scale of which we've seen change. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I don't think that's going to go away. I, the, our, our, our love of <clears throat> entertainment, our love of spectacle, uh, our ability to, to, uh, drive efficiency. I mean, we're still loading in shows under the same, uh, structure and requirements. I mean, 30 years ago, 
maybe two trucks pulled up at the back of an arena. Yeah. And they spent the day getting the air genies and parkan set up and the show happened at night. They took that show down and they moved to the next, the next venue. Now it's 25 trucks pulling up outside that same venue. Uh, Now, not everyone has that budget, but the capabilities for that kind of scale now really exist in our system. So um, I, I think with uh, the advent of LED and you know lower cost manufacturing and and of course digital some time ago, I think you put all those things together and we still got we we've got a big run in front of us in in the way of uh, growth in the lighting industry. In, yeah. In, in, yeah. I I would tend to agree with you. I mean, it looks like uh, you know it looks like a business that's poised to continue growing. Um, you know, I mean, again, the capital part scares me, you know, because sure. it's gotten to it. Like, I, I don't know if you've ever ventured back 25 years to look at your, uh, what your inventory was, oh my uh, God. you know, an inventory valuation yeah. from 25 years ago to today would scare the living shit out of you. Cause you know, a big totally. shop might've had, uh, 200 moving lights back then. Now it's 2000 or more, you know? So it, yeah, it's, no, it, it's crazy. It, Exactly. No, you're, you're totally right. And I think what's kind of exciting too is the, the people, the companies, everybody's got to be more skilled. Yeah. There is a higher requirement for skill, which, which I think is great. Yeah, no, that's very true. Well, Hanley, I appreciate you doing this. I appreciate you taking the time on a lovely Tuesday afternoon. And, yeah, Marcel, uh, and I want to thank you. You you've been uh, you've been on me to do this for a while, and now I uh, I, I realize uh, that I was an idiot to wait this long for this. Not so painful. I'm not gonna finish. I'm not gonna put a flashlight on you and go tell me all your secrets. <laughs> no, I, you know what? I, I mean, I love having fun and and telling funny stories and stuff, and it's it's to each his own, you know, like some people tell really hilarious stories about each other or about whatever. Like one of the funniest stories I ever heard on here was John Wiseman. Uh, I think it was actually Mickey Kerbishley who told the story and Mickey was applying for a job with Wiseman with Verilite and he had to go meet Wiseman in Australia to do this job application basically. Right. And so, of course, Wiseman was wasted out of his brains. Sounds crazy already. Wiseman's (laughs) wasted out of his brains and and convinces Mickey that they should go scuba diving. And um, so, you know, they go scuba diving and they're underwater. And um, Wiseman, you know, because he was inebriated, he threw up in his his breathing breathing apparatus. This is spinal tap. So all of this stuff is coming out of his mouth, and then these schools of fish start just coming in and zooming in on all this stuff, this new fish food, right, that's coming out of Wiseman's depth of his guts. And so Wiseman and Mickey both panicked, and they're like, oh, my God, we got to get to the surface. So they stand up, and they're in, like, knee-deep water. <laughs> they thought they were way offshore, right? And they're like eight feet off the beach, and all these people are looking at them like, "What's wrong with these weirdos?" You know, such a funny story. But I mean, there's stories like that that people like to tell and laugh at themselves, and you then other what? people next, don't want to tell those next, stories. Next round with you, I'll dig a little deeper and see whether I can can't I can't come up with something a bit more colorful. For sure. <laughs> well, I appreciate it very much. Thank you. And by the way, I don't know if you know this, but you're about to hear my. Uh, 
my outro music, which is from a, a local Torontonian named Gatto. Yes, Greg Gottovitz. <laughs> Gatto Love gave him. Gatto. I went to Gatto when I started this podcast. I'm good friends with Greg. And no I went to Greg. I love, I've got all this stuff on my iPhone. I love yeah. listening. Uh, Greg's still kicking too. I just talked to him a couple days ago because uh, uh, Ronnie Hawkins just passed away at ah. 87 years old. And him and Greg were super, super close. And so Greg and I talked. And um, But anyways, I went to him and I said, can you write me a little jingle thing for my podcast? It's called Geezers of Gear. And he goes, I would, Marcel, but, you know, the best lick I ever wrote is from Sweet Thing. Let me just write you a thing that says it's royalty-free forever. And, uh, and so he gave me a royalty-free version of Sweet Thing and said you can you use it as bite, long as you You never but you always sting. I exactly. love it. Exactly. <laughs> but the funny thing is most people don't know who listen to my podcast that it's about a 16-year-old groupie. So. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's not a good thing. <laughs> Thanks, Huntley. I appreciate yeah. it, man. Thank you, Marcel. All Real right, pleasure. my friend. See, See you later. You. Sweet.